The Planet Football Podcast is brought to you by T-Mobile. This baseball season, T-Mobile customers can get a free season-long subscription to MLB TV Premium. Sign up by April 10th at tmobile.com slash MLB, or sign up for MLB TV while on T-Mobile's network. We're also brought to you by Harry's Razors, superior razors shipped straight to your door at half the drugstore price. Get $5 off your first order with the code FOOTBALL, that's F-U-T-B-O-L, at harrys.com. We're also brought to you by FanDuel. Now that baseball is back, you can try the fun and competition of Daily Fantasy risk-free for up to 10 bucks. Go to FanDuel.com and enter the promo code PLANET. Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor, Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior writer Grant Wall and SI.com's Brian Strauss. A little later, we will have an interview, Grant, that you did with Charlie Stilitano, who is, uh, if you've ever heard him or met him, a very entertaining character, to say the least. He's also one of the uh, best connected Americans in the world of soccer in general, uh, and he's at the heart of of this European Super League uh, debate, battle, whatever you want to call it, um, overseas. So it's a very entertaining interview. Definitely stick around for that. Um, but guys, I want to start with U.S. soccer. Uh, not so much on the field. Uh, we're, we're taping this Thursday, the day after the U.S. women absolutely obliterated Colombia, 7 uh, to nothing. Uh, floodgates just opening for the U.S. women, who looked fantastic on the field. Uh, but off the field, a, a ton, a ton of issues. Uh, obviously, the U.S. women's national team... Uh, wage discrimination complaint, the lawsuit that they have going on with U.S. soccer, Abby Wambach, not a part of U.S. soccer anymore, to be fair, but but still roping in uh, a couple of men's national team players to, to just a kind of a, just a seedy incident. Um, Grant, how, how are you feeling about U.S. soccer these days? It's been a rough week. Uh, you know, that was a DUI that Abby Wambach got uh, that then... Uh, she apologized for, but a, a real hit uh, and a real serious matter, obviously, that um, uh, she's trying to do some big things in uh, in the soccer world, and even outside the soccer world, fighting for equality, having meetings with the Apple and Facebook CEO, but you can't do things like that and then have DUIs happen. So... Um, that's that's a tough one for her, uh, and then the U.S. men's players' response. Um, you can't do that, uh, but it also reveals something. I think, uh, you know, for one, U.S. Soccer Federation over the past week taking a huge negative PR hit uh, for this wage discrimination uh, complaint by the U.S. women. And I'm seeing, and I've covered this sport for a long time. So has Brian. You know, I'm seeing as much public tension between the U.S. men's and women's teams as I have since the last time the U.S. women won the World Cup back in 1999-2000, and and there was a fair amount of tension then, too, at times. Uh, Very specifically, Bedoya and Altidore have problems with the comments that Wambach made in December saying the U.S. men had too many foreign players uh, who are are very American, as American as any of us. Uh, And never apologizing for it, which actually is stunning to me. Um, and so for that specific thing, I think Wombach should should finally apologize. I think Bedoya and Altidore should apologize and everyone can move forward. Um, 
But there's a lot to unpack, and, and there's just so much happening right now with U.S. soccer that, you know, Brian wrote a great column about this on SI.com this week. Just uh, it's partly due to the growth of soccer in America, which obviously is a good thing, but there's more money in the sport. How do you manage that? How do you keep everyone on the same page? Yeah, Brian, and, and I want to give the, the torch to you here. Um, again, if you haven't gotten a chance to read Brian's piece yet, definitely do so just on, on the perception problems that U.S. soccer is facing. And it's not just what's happened in, in the last week or, or two. It's, it's just it's been building now. There's, there's just a lot going on. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, first of all, when Grant mentioned Wambach's comments, you know, during during that, uh, I think it was on Bill Simmons's podcast, but during that sort of rant, she also called for Jurgen Klinsmann to be fired. You know, so so here was the face of the women's national team uh, advocating the dismissal of the coach of the men's national team, which sort of, again, just kind of makes this whole one nation, one team thing just seem kind of like a joke. Um, so. You know, this is not a unified body. This is a U.S. soccer is is a still pretty small organization that's now managing a, a sport that is growing, uh, you know, quickly and in ways that we could never have anticipated and problems that you couldn't have imagined facing sort of come to life. And you've got to be nimble and you've got to have the, the manpower and the brain power and, 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 and the mandate to kind of handle all these things. And right now, you know, it, it's not it's not for lack of effort. It's, it, I, I think U.S. soccer means well. I don't think there's anyone there who is, you know, uh, up to no good, but it's just been really tough for them to manage. And when you've got all these constituencies, you know, youth soccer, the professional game, the amateur game, the men, the women, the sponsors, the TV networks, CONCACAF, FIFA, there's so many tentacles to this beast. Um, and what we've seen over the past eight to 10 months is U.S. soccer really sort of starting to face challenges they may not be equipped to handle. Yeah, I think you you put it best in in your story. Um, you know, in in response to one nation, one team, you write the U.S. is comprised of many soccer nations, many teams, and many interests, and these these entities are coming into conflict. I think that's that's a, well, way more of an accurate mantra than than one nation, one team. I don't know if that's going to sell many t-shirts or scarves, but uh, but it's true though. It's just a very complex issue, and I think a lot of people. I've seen a lot of fans respond to a lot of the the women's wage discrimination. Um, pay and and to Bedoya and Altador's comments by using just the results on the field as as their you know basis for for argument and yeah okay the U.S. women have been more successful on the field but it just goes deeper than that and like why are you bringing results into uh, a conversation about jokes being made at the expense of a DUI it just the entire everybody on every single level it's it's really deplorable people it's don't ugly hear, i mean when i sort of discuss trevor noah's daily show uh segment i mean people don't want to hear sort of the nitty-gritty facts you know when 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 these really talented and successful women uh claim that they're being discriminated against it creates a knee-jerk reaction and people just want to sort of jump on uh the the, the big picture sort of sort of passionate response um you know uh, here, here's i mean obviously we could all we all know that it's apples and oranges comparing anyone who follows soccer understands that the women have a have a decade head, you know, decades of head start against their opponents while the men are decades behind. I mean, everyone understands this when people say, well, you know, 25 million people watched the the, the, the Women's World Cup final in, in in 2015. Well, overall, the Women's World Cup audience for the U.S. games was half of what the, the, the men uh, averaged in 2014. You can't just count the final. So 
But people don't want to hear this stuff. They want to react. They want to take a side. They want to take a stand. They want to show their, you know, that that they're, uh, you know, passionate and that they have a stake in it. And and you start to give facts and you start to sort of throw statistics and numbers out there and people tune you out. So right now, U.S. soccer isn't isn't losing the the fact battle. They're losing the perception and publicity battle. Absolutely. And and Grant, the the PR side of this, uh, <clears throat> the U.S. women kind of really took a, a big step. And you touched on this before. I, I think the wage discrimination suit caught U.S. soccer by surprise. They didn't have a, a response immediately ready when when they went on the Today Show and and said you know, what, what their, their stated goals were. Um, and I think in, in this day and age, the second you win public opinion, it's incredibly hard to lose it. It, it, like Brian's saying it, you know, facts should be the basis for an argument, but with social media being what it is and with everyone having an instant reaction, it, it doesn't always work like that. Yeah, and this became a freight train news-wise last Thursday when the wage discrimination suit came out. And I mean... Just speaking in my own own terms, I, I've never been on both nightly news, you know, major nightly news shows in, in the same day. CBS, NBC, it was on the front page of the, the New York Times and the Washington Post. I mean, this is a, a very big media story, and it's it's a tough spot for U.S. soccer, I think, because they're going to lose the PR battle on this, and they are losing the PR battle on this, even though... I think it's accurate to say some of the the facts that the player side put forth were sort of misleading. You know, I mean, they yes, they made the women made more money than the men revenue wise in 2015 when they won a World Cup. But the apples to apples comparison is a four year World Cup cycle or an eight year cycle. And they know that, actually. And so, you know, they're trying to get the best deal possible. And yes, it's all the better for them if they can get the EEOC to rule on their behalf and get equal pay. I'm I'm still not entirely sure how that would be solved if you're you know you're looking at such an, an apples to oranges situation. Um, but it's kind of a no lose move for the U.S. women's players. And as far as I know, they they still want to have a CBA. The men's players have a CBA. And so that's the one factual takeaway, I, big takeaway I can have from all of this wage discrimination complaint is this is going to help the U.S. women's players in their negotiations with U.S. soccer. And I don't think that's callous to say. That's just that's just the truth. I think there are gestures U.S. soccer could make to sort of close some of the gap quickly. It, it's ridiculous that the women's per diem is 20 percent less than the men's. That makes no sense. Um, it's ridiculous that the women make less per ticket sold than the men that that can be fixed very quickly. So I think there are a few things that the Federation could do now if they want to or soon uh, to, to sort of make some some symbolic but also meaningful steps to to to, to close some of the gap. Obviously, yeah. But you look at the previous history here and the U.S. women's CBA, the last time they really fully did a new one was 2006. The last time the men did one was 2011. So my suggestion is, is that on those issues and and basically any domestic related issue, in my opinion, not World Cup bonus related or incentive related, that the men and the women should be on equal terms and that they should put in place in both CBAs or at least the next women's CBA that if the men do another CBA, because they get these done at different times, 
then the women's will go up with the men's when the men, like you can insert these clauses and, and then you won't have those issues. And I know there's a lot of frustration right now, I think on the US women's player side with their previous director. They don't think he pushed US soccer hard enough. They thought he was too chummy with US soccer. And if you look at what led us to this point, they pushed him out, John Langle, uh, who I respect by the way. Uh, you know, he was the US player representative for like 15 years. And they brought in a guy named Rich Nichols who instantly took a much harder line stance against US soccer, which is their right to do. And now Nichols has also brought in Jeffrey Kessler, who is big time sports lawyer in this country who is pushing hard on this. Uh, so, you know, if you go back, we could kind of predict this coming to an extent last December when the US women refused to play in Hawaii and ended up having that game canceled as it should have been uh, due to a substandard field. Um, but this is sort of a, a progression of events. And um, look, uh, it's very tense right now and we'll see what, uh, what the US women can get out of this. Now, one thing I will say from a, a reporting perspective, this EEOC filing, a lot of legal experts have said they think this will take a year or two or more to get a ruling uh, I asked Kessler about this yesterday, and he said, no, he thinks that they'll get a ruling this year. So we'll find out. Interesting. We, we had Michael McCann write about uh, this on SI.com as well, our legal expert um, who's been on our podcast before talking the the previous U.S. Women's National Team uh, lawsuit. Um, and and basically, it's I think all, a lot of these issues are going to come together to the point where um, – you know, with the the Olympics is 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 the big thing that's dangling out there, right? If the U.S. women are ruled that they're able to strike before then, uh, and then can force their way into new CBA discussions and and you know close the gap on on the wage discrimination, um, then you know we we have to see a lot hinges on the ruling that we're expecting in May, basically. And a little background on that: um, John Langle, the previous executive director for the U.S. Women's Players, gave a deposition last week. Not long before the wage discrimination complaint came out, in which, according to every all of my reporting, U.S. soccer got what they wanted uh, from that deposition and are very confident, that's just how they're approaching it, that they will get a, a ruling in their favor in early June that says from the Chicago court that the CBA does in fact go through the end of this calendar year with a no strike clause and the and that the US women would have lost leverage to strike before the Olympics if that's what the result ends up being some theories that the wage discrimination complaint timing was actually in response to that sort of defeat in quotes interesting uh, all of this combined points to the fact that we are a week before the Olympic draw and so much of the focus is off the field <laughs> Um, like the U.S. women, the attack looks unbelievable right now. The granted, look, the Columbia team that they beat, um, in in Connecticut is one going through its own uh, labor dispute. I guess those players haven't been paid reportedly in in what four months, I believe. Um, and you know they're they're not the same team that showed up in the round of sixteen in the World Cup. I think we can all agree on that. But the U.S. women look fantastic on the field. They're playing so well, uh, and, and a lot of new faces are playing well, too. And, and you can see the progression of this team as they build up towards the Olympics, and just nobody nobody's focused on it. No, but as we get closer to the Olympics, I think we probably will 
Uh, and you look at uh, Mallory Pugh, you look at Crystal Dunn, you look at these players who are having a major impact on the field, and this team's playing well right now, and they did during the Olympic qualifying tournament too. I didn't expect this many changes from the World Cup team, especially when you were going from a 23-player roster at the World Cup to 18 at the Olympics. But due to retirements, pregnancies, injuries, you're seeing Jill Ellis use players like Mal Pugh. She's 17. She's awesome. And it's so cool to see uh, a 17-year-old emerge this way and really connect with the established players like Carly Lloyd uh, on the field. And obviously the, the competition will get tougher than we saw against Columbia. Uh, but as of right now, as of 2016, when you put all that together, when you put together Alex Morgan scoring goals like the last Olympic year, um, the team's fun to watch. It is. It is indeed. All right. Well, let's let's exit on, on that note then. Uh, something a little more uh, uplifting than, than all of the strife off of the field. But obviously, um, and again, please read Brian's column because it, it is just all-encompassing on everything, not just the U.S. women that, that U.S. soccer has has on its plate right now. Um, but with that, we, we are going to take a, a quick break and then transition into Grant's interview with the very entertaining and very important Charlie Stilatano. Summer is just around the corner, and the surest sign of that isn't just that MLS is back in season, but also that Major League Baseball is back in season. And if you're like me and you're a fan of, say, the world champion Kansas City Royals or some other team, you can catch every Major League Baseball game you want all year thanks to T-Mobile. Only T-Mobile customers get a free year-long MLB.tv premium subscription. That's a $110 value for free, so you never miss a game. Hurry and sign up by April 10th to catch any out-of-market game all season long. That's 2,430 games and over 7,000 hours of baseball that will never touch your data plan all season. Thanks to Binge On, only from T-Mobile, you can stream your favorite team's games without using any of your data. Because T-Mobile has you covered, unlike those other guys. So get your free MLB.tv premium subscription by April 10th and catch every moment all season long. Switch to the Uncarrier today. Already a T-Mobile customer? Sign up at tmobile.com slash MLB. Sign up for MLB.tv while on T-Mobile's network. New MLB.tv premium subscribers only. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Visit MLB.tv for details. Binge on available to T-Mobile customers with a qualifying plan. Detectable video typically streams at DVD quality. Video from participating services doesn't count against full speed data on our U.S. network. Third-party subscription charges may apply. Have you ever asked yourself why razors are one of the only products in the drugstore that are locked inside that plexiglass case? It's because good razors cost way too much. So much that people are more likely to steal them than just about every other product in the drugstore. That's why two guys started Harry's.com. They sell high-quality blades that provide a close, comfortable shave for half the price you're used to. Now, this is Alex Abnos. I'm the producer of Planet Football. And if you look at my Twitter avatar, it's pretty obvious that I don't shave all that often. But part of the reason for that is because shaving is just too darn expensive. This offer from Harry's is making me seriously reconsider this beard that I've had for about the past 10 years. Seriously, it is. And knowledge of that will make both of my parents, I think, pretty happy. Anyway, Harry's gives you factory direct prices. They cut out the middleman and ship their products right to your door. Stop getting ripped off. Harry's starter set is the best option for new customers, and it's a great deal. 
For just 15 bucks, you get a razor handle, foaming shave gel, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. Plus, for listeners of this show, Harry's is giving you $5 off your first purchase with promo code FOOTBALL. That's F-U-T-B-O-L. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. And make sure you use the code FOOTBALL, that's F-U-T-B-O-L, at checkout to let them know who sent you. We've got a special guest on today's Planet Football podcast. He's the co-founder and chairman of Relevant Sports, which organizes the annual International Champions Cup soccer tournament during the summer here in the U.S., featuring many of the world's top soccer clubs. You can hear him regularly on Sirius XMFC, where I also happen to work. Full disclosure. He is, in my opinion, the best connected American in European soccer. He is Charlie Stilitano. Thanks for joining me, Charlie. Thanks, Grant. And I might add that uh, you and I are equally handsome. <laughs> and equally bald. Equally bald, yes. We share the same barber. Um, so lots to talk about here, Charlie. Um, and a lot of it has to do with International Champions Cup, what you got coming this summer. Um, there was also a recent controversy that basically turned you into public enemy number one in England. Yes, hated. And I had to cancel my... Uh, summer vacation at Leicester after hearing <laughs> all the uh, negative publicity. And we got lots to talk about with that. First off, though, just if you could explain, what do you do for Relevant Sports? I'm the chairman of Relevant Sports. As you mentioned, I co-founded it. We, um, we really work for Stephen Ross. Uh, Matt Higgins is our, uh, our, let's call him our liaison to, to uh, Stephen Ross. Uh, Mr. Ross owns the Miami Dolphins. I like to call Mr. a little respect, but Mr. Ross owns the Miami Dolphins and he's a chairman of, of related companies, which is the largest developer really, I think in the world, uh, one, certainly one of them. And he's doing Hudson Yards now here in New York. I did the Time Warner Center. Uh, and I think that what I, what I do for them is basically run their events company, soccer event company, soccer, because Mr. Ross literally saw the changing face of Miami, uh, owning the Miami Dolphins. He said this is obviously his dream, his dream team, the team that he loves, and he bought the Dolphins. Uh, And we bring these little teams over like Barcelona to play Chivas to Guadalajara uh, and AC Milan versus Chelsea, and he filled up the stadium. And obviously that was something that uh, has really – something that I I don't think he expected and something that – really reflects the population shift in the Miami area and really the population shift throughout the United States. Okay. So you organized this summer tournament. Uh, You were in Europe a lot during the European soccer season as you organize your tournament. Uh, This is how you've gotten connected to the biggest clubs in Europe. Um, And recently, I guess it's been about a month now, uh, there was a meeting in London at the Dorchester Hotel uh, with the five of the top clubs in England, their chairman, basically. Um, and this, they were photographed leaving uh, the meeting, which caused people to ask, what were they talking about? You were there at the meeting. And I'll let you take over the story now. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, first of all, it wasn't a secret meeting. Right. I don't think we would have we put our name on the... Uh on the, I won't call it the marquee, but the panel when you come in saying where, where the uh, relevant sports meeting was held. Uh, and certainly we would have picked a, a little quieter location than Dorchester, which I think 
uh, journalist or should I say uh, photojournalist or paparazzi better right. wait outside of that wait outside the uh, the Dorchester. Uh, it was a meeting really involving uh, five of the uh, uh, bigger clubs in in England and all members of the International Champions Cup. Um, and in fact, it was Arsenal, uh, uh, Chelsea, Man United, Liverpool, and Man City. Um, and uh, Arsenal was there. You'd say, well, they're not in the Champions Cup this year. They are because we were talking about Champions Cup next year in China. Mm -hmm. The International Champions Cup, uh, again, the vision of Mr. Ross was to have a really uh, a, a tournament that went across not just the United States or certainly not just Miami, but across the United States, North America, and now we're in Australia and China. So we have many of the biggest clubs in the world. Uh, and part of this discussion was we were going to go to Italy, we were going to go to Spain, and we try to get the different teams together. And we talk about general general and specific points about the International Champions Cup. Where are you going to play this year? Where are you going to play next year? Uh, you know, we try not to talk to a group about money because everyone wants as much money <laughs> as they could get, which is normal. Uh, and but we talk about how to position the cup, and the cup is the International Champions Cup has really become the preeminent preseason tournament, really I would say in the world, and um, and that's really a tribute to the teams. They bring their players, the biggest and best teams come. They they're very competitive and they take it seriously. And so part of this was really to talk about moving forward. Within the uh, within the ICC, when they all came out together, uh, the the paper speculated that this was a discussion about uh, a super league or um, a, a um, or a shift in the you know in the in the European competitions. Um, I think it was fueled originally because <clears throat> Ivan Gazidis, the uh, CEO of of Arsenal. Talked about uh, talked about the really and almost exclusively was the ICC, but he said they also spoke about uh, uh, the, the the changing I'll call it the changing mood of the big clubs in in Europe, mm -hmm. um, and it was a discussion that we have all the time. Um, you know, I've, I've been in this business since the early '90s, and some of these people I've known for 20 years, and so. You have conversations, but I would say the conversation was almost exclusively about uh, the ICC. Uh, but they seem to. I think. I think the reason why, if I have to say, the reason why it sort of blew up was there was one AP article. I think really, uh, I did not think was fair about what I said in a subsequent discussion on my own radio show with my co-hosts. Neil Barnett, who will never be forgiven for this, by the way, and Ray <laughs> Hudson, where we talked about generally the meeting itself. And then later we talked about different movements, let's call it, within football in Europe. Uh, and from there, uh, I think the AP did me a, a great disservice, to be fair. Um, and I'm used to being in the media, doing a radio show for 10 years. Uh, but I really felt it was... Um, it was an unfair treatment of what I said, and it blew up from there, I think primarily because I'm an American. And uh, if, I'm, if I think if, if my critics are going to be honest, I think they would probably say, yeah, it's probably true, because I've heard much more important people than me and much more relevant people than me 
relevant with an A, uh, not relevant sports. Uh, you know, the Carline Trubanegas, the Michael Bolingbrooks, the Andrea Agnellis, uh, the uh, 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 Joseph Bartomeo, to name a few of the of the you know you talk about the world leaders in football, not me. Um, they said many things, much more direct and much more pointed than than I did. But for some reason, I got labeled uh, uh, the devil. I think is probably the best way to like phrase American it. devil. The American devil, yes, the American devil. The um, American devil. It's interesting because once this took fire in England. None of those people over there actually heard the audio from the Sirius XM clip show that caused so many people to get angry. But if I actually went back and, and got the audio. You actually listened to it. You did your homework. I, it's Well, I mean, like, it's, it's interesting because I have a lot of respect for the Associated Press. But in this case, uh, I think you got a point. Um, you know, when I look at the audio, uh, what got people angry was your representation of what some of these big clubs are thinking these days, which you're aware of. Yes. You were kind of the messenger yeah. in this case. Uh, and you're right. We've seen some of these quotes directly from Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, the CEO at Bayern Munich. Um, we've seen other chairmen of, of clubs talk about wanting to change uh, the format, potentially, of Champions League because they feel like... Um, this event has gotten so big and they feel like the big clubs that were part of that process aren't being rewarded enough. Um, and, you know, look, that's whether you agree or I agree with that or not, that's their take at this point. Now, what's interesting to me is going through the audio of Sirius XM, I run into a lot of instances where you're hedging a lot in saying this is not me talking, yes. this is them, that yeah. were not in the Associated Press story that made it seem as if this was purely American Charlie Stilettano. So here's, here's one example for, this is the audio from what you actually said. This is going to sound arrogant and furthest from it because it's the teams and not me. When you see teams this summer in the ICC, you'll shake your head and say, isn't that Champions League? No, Champions League is PSV and Ghent. Um, Let's see. I've talked to these leaders over the years. They look at it. Can you imagine the NFL paying players and saying, by the way, for the third for a third of the year, you'll make money for someone else and we won't be compensated. You're speaking in terms of this is how they're viewing it. Um, Neil at one point says, uh, stop, Charlie. Uh, you actually are talking about wanting to stop Lester from winning the league. I'm not saying one way is better than the other. I'm not the architect. I'm just telling you what I hear and what I see. What, what man you and I would argue is this, blah, blah, blah. Point being that, like, you went out of your way yeah. to distance yourself from these are my ideas. I am the architect. Um, certainly not by me, but uh, this is all over Europe. This is the thinking, at least, um, you know, at the very least, a uh, change of format is absolutely being talked about. So... That's interesting to me, um, and I, I think it's important to put out there. Now, um, what was that like for you once this comes out and suddenly you are one of these examples of people on, on Twitter and in the media who is basically the object of tremendous amounts of derision? Uh, it was... Uh, uh 
it was very uh, difficult because uh, I was alone. I was in Europe and I had a horrible flu. <laughs> and it, it is, it was probably a real low point. Look, I mean, I'm used to being in the uh, public eye as, if you will, an administrator or a, a worker, let's call it. You know, ran the World Cup as I was saying at New York, New Jersey. Uh, I yeah. remember, I remember uh, when I was fired from the Metro Stars as a lot of general managers, you know, get fired if their team does not perform well. You know, I remember, you know, waking up in the morning and neighbors saying, hey, I heard you got fired, you know. Uh, so, you know, honestly, I'm used to it uh, in a sense that sometimes these things happen. I think this time was a little different. I think it was because like you, I respect the AP enormously. Um, and um, I really was sort of surprised that the AP got so much of it wrong. Uh, and I had a friend, a kid from Leicester, who coaches youth soccer in Westfield, who said, you didn't say any of these things, Charlie, from, from the get-go, from the very first discussion about, you know, about Leicester, which much of the derision came from the Leicester fans. Uh, and and I, I think there was more helplessness. And, you know, you hear all the time people say things like, I've been misquoted or I've been, but I really felt that this was an unfair treatment of what I had said because I was very clear that I was not the architect. I was very clear that it was not my idea. It was very clear that we did not have a plan that we were presenting to people, uh, that it was just part of a, a discussion at times that we have every day in Europe. And I, and I guess it's, it's really fair to say that since my conversation, as I mentioned, you know, Pictures of Andrea Agnelli, the, the, the CEO, or the president of Juventus, with Karl-Heinz Rubenegger shaking hands, talking about they want to create an American-style league, and Bartomeu, the president of Barcelona. You're not talking about little people here. You're talking about some of the most influential people on the earth. And it was reported like, well, he said this, and this guy said this, and me instead it was... Uh, Charlie said this, which in many cases wasn't true, as you pointed out. And I love the part about I'm a tycoon. <laughs> I'm a mogul. Uh, I am a guru. I am, uh, you know, it was truly remarkable. As I said on the air on my radio show, if you can come to my home uh, and if you put heart to hand and you tell me it's a mansion, you can have it. Uh <laughs> I have one and a half baths and I'm laughing at, you know, I'm laughing when they say that I had Sir Alex Ferguson at my mansion. And, and I guess it wasn't even so much the AP article, but it was the subsequent articles that followed that were very, very difficult. Um, especially if you're home and if you've ever been on the road by yourself and you're sick as a dog, it's hard enough as it is. And you tr spend so much time away from your family. Uh, and you want to say to people like, I didn't say that. I didn't say it like that. But I think, you know, we also work for a, a very, you know, very important people, certainly more important than me. Um, and, you know, we have, as any as any company would have, PR people and lawyers and et cetera. Uh, and I think everyone felt I was being treated unfairly. But the advice was, 
hey, this will all blow over soon. Uh, that was hard to deal with. You know, you sit in a hotel room alone and it'll blow over soon and you see your, you know, you have people calling you from Hungary and Holland and places like say, man, you're a bastard, Charlie. <laughs> and I was like, I never said that. <laughs> so I remember texting you soon after this came out and you were on a train in Italy and I, I appreciated that you were looking at this with some humor. You were saying that you, you were about to check into a hotel in Sicily under the name Michael Corleone. Yes, I was. That was my big line. <laughs> you can find me. It's in a little town, Corleone, uh, Sicily, and you can find But I And, and I, I, I pulled up the picture. Somebody pulled the picture and sent it to me. Michael Corleone was in the scene in, in uh, Palermo, well, in, in Corleone, where he's hiding on the high. I didn't kill anybody. And I really didn't say anything bad that I thought, you know? That's my only question. Do you, is there anything that you did say in that that you wish you had not or said in a different way? Yeah, I, well, it's hard to say because, as you point out, I hedged what I was saying. But it wasn't hedging in a sense of being trying to be cute or being political. The questions were asked, you know, are there talks of a Super League in Europe? And it was completely separate from the the big five discussion, if you will, in, in, in England, it was a separate question. And all I said was, yeah, I've been hearing this for years. And I remember when media partners out of Italy in 1999, I believe it was, uh, uh, you know, laid out an actual super league plan. Um, and you know, I've talked to those people during those days and, and UEFA, you know, responded by making a bigger, more robust, you know, champions league, and so all I was pointing out was that these discussions take place with or without me, that's for sure. And I was just pointing it out, and that suddenly turned into I was the architect. So uh, it, it's, you know, there comes a certain point where it's so absurd that all you could do is laugh. Right. And um, that's what I was telling our, you know, our very cautious and probably a lot smarter than me, our PR people saying, like, you know, lay low. And... uh I said at some point they stopped talking about the Kennedy assassination too, you know, and it's it's kind of hard when you're getting just beaten, <laughs> beaten by the head and neck by these journalists, you know. Hey, um, I, I look at back at what you actually said about Lester in in the audio, and uh, the way you put it was. Uh, I'm not saying one way is better than another. I'm not the architect. I'm just telling you what I hear and what I see. Here's what Manchester United would argue. Did we create, let's call it the money pot created by soccer and fandom around the world? Who's had more of an integral role, Man United or Leicester? It's a wonderful, wonderful story, but you can see it from Man United's standpoint. Um, for me as a fan, it's spectacular what Leicester's yeah, yeah. doing. And you actually said that twice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, um, well, you know, on our radio show, it's a great point you bring up. You know, we've had many people from Leicester. I also have had Claudio Ranieri um, over many times, and I know Claudio personally. Uh, one of my partners in Italy, his his closest friend is probably, or one of his closest friends is Claudio Ranieri, my buddy Stefano Pucci. And, you know, you're talking about one of the true gentlemen in the sport. And I have talked about Claudio Ranieri and Lester for it had to be at least a dozen times all year long. And, you know, just tell you two quick stories in September of this year, uh, two young men that coached my daughters and now coach, uh, John Scheiman's daughters, my partner, John Scheiman, uh, 
Sean, uh, Sean Sweeney and Shane Bullock, I brought it to my home several times. We used to come watch, I'd make them pancakes in the morning and we'd watch EPL games. They got the great thrill of meeting Sir Alex Ferguson. I brought him over one day when Sir Alex was there and it couldn't have been the sweetest, sweetest young men you could meet, right? They're from Leicester. They said in September, Charlie, if Leicester uh, wins the title, you know, if, if Leicester can win the title on the last game of the season, will you take us there and sit? Will you, will you take us to the, to the game against Chelsea? I said, absolutely. Now John got involved, John Scheiman. And we've agreed for months now yeah. to take them, actually pay for their flights, hotels, and everything to take them to that last game of the season. And during the course of the year, we talked about, you know, what a wonderful story this was. And I even gave the Leicester, uh, uh, Leicester, uh, the, 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 I think it's the Mercury. I can't think of the newspaper now. But where they, they were interviewing us, and I said, what struck me about Leicester was, here's this incredible multi-ethnic town. So many different cultures are, are, are in Leicester. They have players from different cultures on the field. And in the stands, they're all singing Claudio Ranieri's name, this Italian in Leicester. And I said, it's such a wonderful thing. And the guy said to me, I'm going to use that. And months later, I'm now the villain of Leicester. And I can't, you know, I can't, I'm still trying to reckon how that actually happened, you know? Right. And, and I'm one of the few people in America that have actually been to Leicester. <laughs> and, and I was saying, I visited in 1976, huh. first game I ever saw in my life. First game I ever went to, professional game uh, outside the U.S., yeah. was uh, at Leicester against Aston Villa, and Chris Nickel scored four goals in a 2-2 draw. And I was, two yeah, I was at the game, a <laughs> defender for Villa. I was at the game. I mean, truly remarkable. Right. And, and then I've always had this special place in my heart for Leicester. Yeah. Uh, and I've told this story before on the air, way before this happened, where I played for the, uh, a youth soccer team. We went to Leicester to play. I, um, I met a girl there, but that's a whole nother story. Okay. <laughs> And we won the game three to two. We were down two nil at halftime. I remember the school kids coming out and saying, had noticed that my legs were hairy. And that would look at hairy legs, hairy legs. They were freaking out because they'd never seen that before, apparently on a 15 year old kid. Okay. I scored three goals in the second half and we stayed with English families. Mm -hmm. And we won three to two. And my. I'll call him the English father for lack of a better word because he had us at the, you know, they took care of us. We stayed one week in Leicester. I scored three goals. He won 20 quid. I still have no idea what, I didn't know what 20 quid meant, right? Took me out to the pub and introduced me to Guinness Stout, 15 years old. <laughs> I want you to know that I was throwing up what it must have felt like two days. So I've been to Leicester. Not many people out there that have been criticizing me have been to Leicester. Certainly none of them have been to that game in 1976 like me. So here's a, a, a small sample of some of the stories that were written, the columns that were written. Uh, one is called Pieces of Hate by a guy known Ian McIntosh for the set pieces. And here's maybe the money paragraph. 
Stilitano doesn't understand, he doesn't understand the notion of the underdog. If Stilitano directed Die Hard, he'd replace barefooted John McClane with one of the giant robots from Pacific Rim. If he directed Star Wars, Luke Skywalker would launch a final assault on the Death Star with his own Death Star. Stilitano doesn't want romance or love. Stilitano wants two fake-tanned, creatine-loaded, dead-eyed porn stars grudge-bleeping each other under the bright lights of whoever paid the most money. Uh, odd. I'm not really a big porn fan, but I would say this to you. Um, I think so much of that hatred, because the only word for it is hatred, um, was was really, I, I can only say, misguided, but probably just because I'm an American. Right. And, you know, I love the Brits. They invented the game in Italy, where most of my soccer culture comes from, or at least inherited from. Uh, you know, we still call the manager Mister. You know, out of respect for that. But it doesn't mean because you invented the modern game that you're the only one that's allowed to talk about it. And let's be honest, this isn't brain surgery. It's soccer. You know, and by the way, soccer's something else they gave to us. It wasn't our word soccer. It was the English invented soccer. The word soccer. So, I, I felt that, you know, that is so, I think, typical of what was said about me. And I can't even figure out how they got that. You know, I grew up loving the uh, New York Yankees and the, and the New York Giants. And now young people would say, oh, you're a front runner. These guys want things. No. When I grew up, the Yankees had, had were horrible. They were the worst team. They would have been relegated when I grew up. And so would the New York Giants. And so now, because they've had some good years and they've, you know, if you will, Yankees have pulled the Man United where they, if you look at Man United's true history, it's only two times they did well under Matt Busby and under Sir Alex Ferguson. Before and after and in between, it was crap. You know, they didn't do anything. Uh, but those two genius managers brought them to heights that no one else has ever seen. And that's fantastic. But, you know, I mean, to say that I don't like an underdog is is I don't even know where they got it. I really don't even know where they got it. I don't. So we have something here that we thought we'd give a shot because uh, Twitter Twitter was uh, the I, real place for uh, hatred, for hatred. a lot of this animosity. Uh, so we have some mean tweets that uh, I thought we'd get you to to maybe read. Sure, these will be good. Ready? Charlie Stilitano is a soulless, parasitic corporate goblin. If he had his way, trophies would be given out for who sells the most shirts. Hmm. Nice. Do you want me to comment each time or just... Just, just read get, them and then we'll get your thoughts. Charlie Stilitano is a massive, massive twat. Americans need to stay the f*** out of football. Charlie Stilitano has no clue what he's talking about. You don't see us saying what the NFL should do. So keep your American arse out of footy. Someone find... <laughs> this is Jack. I love this. Someone find Charlie Stilitano and kick him to death. <laughs> John Bruin, uh, Charlie Sultana only listens to music by best-selling artists. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Um, by the way, I really enjoyed that. That was good. Cathartic, that was good. Was cathartic. I, I, I would guess. Yeah, I was only reading it, by the way. <laughs> They'll probably blame me. You hear the guy's just cursing on the air, yeah? But uh, you're actually pretty excited about your tournament this summer. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. I mean, one thing I wanted to go back and say really was that 
you know, I didn't say those things that they claim I said. Uh, but one thing which is really, I think, disappointing was that there was never any appreciation of what I've said about Lester for the past year, really. Uh, and what I've said about Claudio Ranieri and what I've said about the Lester community, which I feel is not just the greatest story of the year, but I don't think it was Nottingham Forest winning and then winning again, uh, you know, going from being promoted and winning the league. Because as Sir Alex explained to me, you buy players based on your season tickets and what you had in those days. You're talking about maybe if they can hold on to win this, in my opinion, you're talking about the greatest story in sport of all time. And I'm talking about our sport, your sport, their sport, all the sports. This, to me, will be the greatest accomplishment by any one team ever, period. Because, you know, you know, as an Italian soccer fan, you know, uh, I remember reading a little article that that I think it was ESPN put out on their on their website about the the ten greatest soccer tournaments of all time. Well, three are, three are Italy's the top three. Italy's in them. You know, the uh, Euros where we lost in two thousand in the last minute, uh, the nineteen seventy when they lost to Brazil, and the. Uh, uh, and I can't think of the other 2006 World Cup when Italy won. Yeah. They had it as one of the top three. These are the top three. And so, you know, I'm familiar with underdogs. You know, we are the Italian national team to me is the the ultimate underdog. When everyone talks about the greatest teams of all time, they say never Italy is ever included in any of these. And they usually do well when you're not expected to do well. And Leicester to me is, you know, is that in so many ways and it, it, it on steroids, you know, this is unbelievable. No, well, man, let's take that back because there's some controversy there, but this is, this is a story that has no equal as far as I could see. And so, you know, uh, when I hear these things about the hatred and about the, the animosity, you know, you have to take it with a little, a little, uh, you have to, if I took myself seriously, that seriously that I would be hurt and offended and this and that. But again, it's just soccer. It's just sport. Let's everyone relax a little bit. Yeah. Nah, it makes sense. Plus now Lester is part of your tournament this summer. They're coming yeah. out to Los Angeles. Um, Hollywood, Hollywood. Where else are we going to put them in Hollywood? But and you Hollywood. got gone for like what? Four days out there. And yeah, they're going to be out there. I, I tell you this. And, and this is another thing that I think everyone missed when I talked about it. I would, what I was talking about was what other people were saying about European format and competition and not certainly not what I think at all. I mean, the idea of having a, a, a Champions League without this Cinderella team, Leicester, in it is absolutely absurd. It's the furthest thing in the world that I would ever want. Uh, and so... You know, when they say things like, oh, well, Lester wouldn't be in Stilatano's version of this, it's, it is so unbelievably ridiculous. And it, it's comical because, I, I, as I said now, ad nauseum, you know, this is the greatest story, I think, in sports ever. So for people to suggest that I'm trying to create something, that I'm actually the architect or trying to create something that keeps out the Lesters of the world, that it could be nothing further from truth. And, and I think our ICC is a reflection of that. You know, we are looking at uh, the International Champions Cup as bringing the best and the brightest. And not just the historic giants of the 
you know, my team, AC Milan or or uh, or Chelsea, that are both you know struggling this year, you know, uh, but also bring in the teams like you know the the teams that are really new to the sport in many ways, you know, in a sense that new as far as being on top of the world, the PSGs of the world, the 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 Leicesters of the world. It's important for us to have these teams in there. So and yeah, and there's some teams that historically have been great and are still great, like Barcelona, but they're in it too. And so you want to bring the the best and the brightest together. And and this year, I mean it's remarkable. If you think about what we have in Australia, we have Juventus, Spurs, uh and Atletico Madrid. In we have the first in China, we have the first Manchester Derby outside of Manchester. And you throw in a little club like Borussia Dortmund, okay, with 80,000 people a game that they fill their stadium with. And then in Europe and the States, we have Leicester, Celtic, uh, uh, Barcelona, PSG, Real Madrid, AC Milan, Inter Milan, Chelsea, Bayern Munich, and Liverpool. I mean, Leicester's in that group. And that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of the ICC. We're not saying we're going to... You know, we, we bring Leicester just because they're just because it's a nice story. And it's certainly we invited them before we were trying to bring Leicester to uh, to Australia months ago. And before my now infamous interview, uh, we had invited Leicester in writing. And so uh, it, it's the whole thing. Again, it, it's you have to have a, you have to have a sense of humor. And I will tell you the one story that struck me or one moment that struck me that I was at, I was with David Gill at a Manchester United game and sitting right behind us were the Glazers, um, Avi and Joel Glazer, who I believe have done a remarkable job, um, certainly over the, you know, totality of their, of their reign, if you will. Um, and they were just, and this was really when Sir Alex was still managing. So there wasn't, it wasn't like they were struggling like now, let's say, and the fans were just booing him, you know, get out, cheering and chanting. And I turned to Avi Glazer. I said, how do you deal with this? You know, how do you deal with this? He goes, hey, they're fans. They, they pay their money. They're allowed to do what they want to do. You know, I respect them. And I, I feel sort of the, the, the same way for the good humored, you know, the ribbing and stuff like that. Uh, but I do, I do think that it's gone a little too far now, you know, and it's it's time to let's smile and move on. Let's yeah. smile and move on. I think it does get at a fundamental question about the role of Americans in world soccer it does. and how that is being received. Whether you're talking about owners, whether you're talking about um, tycoons like yourself, <laughs> uh, that's what I read in the Guardian. Um, and mogul, and, and uh, but no, I mean, like this is a real thing, and or even as a as a journalist who now covers uh, an American covering world soccer. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's something that that you know, it's it's there's different versions of this. Why can't Bob Bradley or Arena get a big job in Europe? Because they're American, and we're idiots. We don't understand the game. Um, it's not part of the game. You haven't, you know, we're guilty of it here too, where we'll say, ah, the commissioner came out of the NFL. How could he possibly know the game and this and that? And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, everyone's guilty of that a little bit. I think that in Europe, they are, um, very much 
suspicious of uh, Americans taking over their game. There is the romantic view of of football, and it belongs to the it belongs to the fans. And I I'm one of the few people that probably genuinely believe that. You know, and when I started liking AC Milan, they were in the second division. Uh, and so, you know, uh, this is something to me that I, I, it's near and dear to me. And I understand why people are so upset at me, uh, because I've been made out to be the symbol of Americans ruining their game. I mean, it is, it's remarkable to me when people say like some of the articles were that I don't understand the game. You know, I've never played the game. I don't know, you know, and I sit here and I say like, well, you know, None of that's true. You know, none of that's true. But I get the reverse of it. I go to Europe and people ask me about, about the Final Four of the NBA. I have no idea about that stuff. I don't understand basketball. In fact, I played sophomore year in high school, and I think the, the coach said to me, he's never seen anybody worse in his life than me at playing basketball. Now, I was a very good soccer player, you know, or football player, whatever you want to call it, but, and a good baseball player. But I was horrible. But when I go to Europe, people, I'm an authority. I'm an authority because I'm an American. You want a basketball? You want to talk NFL? I know everything. Uh, but it's the opposite. My whole life has been soccer. It's not been, and baseball too, I must admit, you know, but it wouldn't be any different of a Brit like in soccer and cricket, for example. So, you know, it's, it's just funny. You just have to laugh a little bit, Grant. You have to laugh. I will say for those of you listening that if you want to read more about Charlie, I wrote a long story about him for SI.com last year. You can find that at on.si.com slash Charlie Stilitano with two L's, S-T-I-L-L-I-T-A-N-O. And uh, yeah, uh, Charlie, thank you very much for joining the SI Planet Football Podcast. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Grant. It was my pleasure. Baseball is back, everybody. The crack of the bat, the freshly mowed grass, the sport you can watch when MLS or Copa America or Olympic soccer isn't on this summer. All those good things associated with the national pastime, including daily fantasy baseball. If you're not playing FanDuel this season, you're missing out on the most fun a baseball fan can have. On FanDuel, you can choose. Do I compete to win cash from fans around the world or start a listener league with my friends? Either way, you get to be the GM. Study the matchups, get your money ball on, and set your winning lineup. Entry fees start at just $1, and there's no season-long commitment. Play for one day, or for 180 days, plus the playoffs. And here's the best part. FanDuel is giving new players their first game risk-free. Here's what you do. Just go to FanDuel.com and enter the code PLANET. Then enter a FanDuel league or start one with your friends. If you don't win any prize in your first contest, you get that $10 right back to your FanDuel account for more play. That's FanDuel.com with our code PLANET for a risk-free tournament of up to $10. I just wrote out some goals and stuff. I wanted to get drafted as high as I can. I mean, that's coming out. We'll see. After the regular season, after the bowl season, there is another season. Draft season. As soon as the confetti rains down on the NCAA champion, a crop of college football players officially become NFL prospects. These players' new goal is to convince 32 NFL front offices that they cannot be missed. The road to the pros isn't the same for everyone. There are stars derailed by injury. His season is over following surgery. Tropera torn meniscus in his right knee. Blue chip talents overshadowed by red flags. 
Yeah, I was like, yo, we're going to this party. Let's pop this before we go. And I thought, well, everybody else here is doing it. I guess I can do it. QBs trying to prove they can become the face of an NFL franchise. Just tune out the noise and just really focus in on doing what you need to do to be the most prepared you can. I'm Ben Glixman, and over the coming weeks, Sports Illustrated's team of reporters will give you a behind-the-scenes look into one of the craziest and most compelling events in sports. The draft goes deeper than seven rounds. Each pick is a player. Each player has a story. Get ready. It's draft season. To subscribe to this podcast, search for Draft Season on iTunes or find it at si.com slash draft season. All right, welcome back. Thank you again to the very entertaining Charlie Stilitano reading mean tweets, uh, taking it like like a champ. Um, I want to close on on a on a fun light note. Uh, if you watch sports, then you saw the NCAA men's basketball championship game uh, earlier this week, which ended with just one of the most bizarre, amazing, incredible insert your adjective here uh, endings ever. Uh, one incredible last second, almost buzzer beating three pointer matched by another to win the game for Villanova. And it got us thinking here uh, at the SI headquarters just about some of the best finishes in sports. And then, of course, from that, kind of go down the rabbit hole to the best finishes in soccer. Uh, guys, I guess I just want to get your takes on the best finishes you've ever seen. And now, it's not apples to apples, right? You, you know, there's no buzzer beater, especially now, you know, no golden goal, um, you know, in, in the sport. Um, so... You, it's not an exact walk off, but but there are some some pretty close comparisons. I'll, mine, my favorite one maybe ever is Sergio Aguero uh, from Manchester City winning the title at the last second with the second goal in stoppage time, taking it from Manchester United. You've got the the split screen. If you're watching at home, um, they showed Manchester United thinking they've won the title, then going to just oh wow, okay, no, our rival won the title. Bobby, um, you have to say Aguero the right way. I'm gonna let Martin Tyler do that. Balotelli, Aguero! But Brian, I guess let's let's start with you. What um what what are some of the best finishes that that popped to mind? Well, first I have to give props to John Wall, uh, my old teammate. Uh, he was a sweeper, and uh, we my team won the championship in our league in 2003 when he scored a golden goal right off the kickoff. And so that is the best finish I've ever seen. And went on to NBA glory. John, John Wall. Yeah, John Wall, the NBA <laughs> player. Different different John Wall. But, uh, you know, we'll never forget you, John. Um, nice, best, nice. Best, best finish I've ever seen live in person, probably MLS Cup 96 uh, in, that, in that torrential slop, uh, DC scoring twice at the very end and then winning in, in overtime. Spin to the bat and the six. It's headed home. Um, I, I think unlike basketball, unlike football, I think what soccer doesn't have is is the from behind to ahead play. You know, there's no two, there's no three pointer in soccer. If you you either tie the game or you go uh, or or you've been tied and you go ahead. You can't go from losing to winning really uh, in one play that often. I mean, obviously that that's not the case with the way goals and things like that. But um, a couple of examples I can think of where it felt like that were uh, the 99 Champions League final where, where um, Teddy Sheringham and, and uh, Ole Solskjaer, the baby-faced assassin, scored in stoppage time uh, to turn a one nothing deficit into a 2-1 to win for, for Manchester United. Cleared, Gates with a shot, Sheringham! 
into Sheringham, and Solskjaer has won it! And then something that I, just that, that, that stuck has stuck with me for the past couple of years, and it's kind of funny now because of where Leicester is, is in 2013, this is the most amazing finish to a game I've ever seen. In 2013, Watford and Leicester were playing in the playoffs, the Premier League promotion playoffs, or the first division promotion playoffs, and it was the second leg, and it was tied, and Leicester had a penalty in stoppage time, like in the 96th minute of stoppage time, to win it, and it was and uh, Almunia was Watford's goalie, and he saved the penalty, then saved the rebound. Watford went straight down the field in like 10 seconds and scored to win 3-2. to two. So Leicester was going to win it from the penalty spot, and 10 seconds later, Watford won it at the other end. And that's still the damnedest thing I've ever seen. Knockout takes, Almunia saves, knockout follows in, Almunia saves again! Absolutely astonishing. Now here come Watford. Forestieri. Here's Hogg! That is amazing. And it's crazy. You wonder what might have been for Leicester, right? I mean, their whole future just totally down the pipes with, with that loss. Well, it might, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I actually spoke to their, uh, the, the hardcore fan who beats the drum in their Leicester Stadium, uh, Jobber, everyone calls him. Uh, and we talked about moments, tough moments, good moments over the years for Leicester. And he's been there for all of them. And, and that definitely came up. Yeah, that's just, that was incredible. Good call on that. I, I almost forgot about that one. Uh, Grant, what about you? What, what are some of the ones that, that stick out in your mind? So I, I think U.S. national team, Landon Donovan versus Algeria, Abby Wambach versus Brazil in the World Cup. Pretty amazing when you think about it that these goals happened just one year apart because you can go decades with your national team not having even one goal like those in a World Cup. But uh, you know Donovan's goal uh, and Wambach's goal became these viral sensations, uh, and we all kind of remember where we were when those happened. You know, watching those games um, to the point that they're they're forever in U.S. soccer lore. Um, I happened to be in the stadium. I was lucky to be in the stadium for both of those. I happened to be in the stadium for the Euro 2000 final in Rotterdam when France was down late against Italy, got a very late goal from Sylvain Wiltord to send it into extra time. And this is when the golden goal, sudden death, was still in effect. And uh, David Trezeguet uh, gets the Euro 2000 winning golden goal uh, in extra time. Sur la tête de Trezeguet qui a joué la déviation. Oui. Ouais, Wilton qui peut frapper. Oui, oui, Charles. Un partout, un partout. Ce coup-là, il l'a joué, Wilton. Il y a du monde, il y a du monde, il y a Trezeguet. Ah, oui, l'équipe de France est championne d'Europe. L'équipe de France est championne d'Europe grâce à Pires et Trezeguet sur ce coup-là. That's just incredible, and that was a fantastic tournament. Just when you think about. All of that. I remember I filed my Sports Illustrated magazine story after Trezeguet's golden goal 
verbally from a gas station outside the stadium in Rotterdam. And uh, <laughs> yeah, um, but I got it in, made my deadline. Um, that poor transcriber on the other end of the phone. <laughs> <and>, uh, <laughs> those were the days. Um, you know, you look at, at other ones too. And, and, and I mean, soccer, it's possible to, to produce these, these amazing moments. It is different than other sports. I kind of miss the golden goal. I was in the, uh, the stadium in Lons in World Cup 98 when France uh, got a golden goal winner against a really tough Paraguay team. My lasting image, actually, of that has nothing to do with France or the French players or the French fans in the stadium that day. It was the Paraguay players, including the wonderful uh, Jose Luis Chilivert, one of my favorite goalkeepers of all time, they all fell to the ground like they'd been shot. And uh, just, you know, pretty, pretty incredible images. I don't know how I feel about the golden goal. It's gone now uh, in the sport. And I, it, it is a little cruel, but it's also great theater uh, to see a, a sudden death end like that. Uh, and if you look at MLS, I mean, you know, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, Carlos Ruiz with the golden goal in the 2002 final. Step behind the fence. Ruiz is in. Ruiz is shot. Ruiz. That's it. LA are the champions. 14 years later, he's still scoring important goals against <laughs> the United States. Um, and uh, Dwayne Di Rosario. Uh, in, in 2001 so um, pretty cool memories absolutely I I get all the arguments against the golden goal these guys can't play on forever especially when there's only three subs I mean you're gonna play 200 minutes I mean come on um, but man when they hit it is it is awesome there's there's nothing quite like the walk-off the walk-off feeling um, and you know just become an ultimate hero like Chris Jenkins did for Villanova this week uh, so good, good trip down memory lane. Actually straight off a kickoff. I cannot tell you how cool this was. <laughs> went insane. It was just a little, the goalie was like past the 18, just a little touch. And, and he, he sent it 55 yards in the air over the goalie's head. And we all lost our minds. This it was, was so good. This was what, the two Bundesliga? <laughs> yes. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for those memories. Thanks for that trip down memory lane. I think it's going to put a wrap on on this edition of the Planet Football Podcast. I want to thank our producer, Alex Abnos, again, Charlie Stilitano, for taking the time to speak with us about some pretty incredible and, and important issues going on uh, around Europe for Grant Wall and Brian Strauss. I am Avi Creditor. We'll talk to you next week on the Planet Football Podcast. about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. 
Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.